the IAB podcast from SNK Studios. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the final episode of this series of the IAB UK podcast. We're brought to you once again with the help of our sponsor, Verizon Media. I'm Tom Stevens, Head of Marketing at the IAB, and top marks for those of you who've spotted that I'm not James. For this episode, he's handed the reins over to me, and I can't wait to spend the next 25 or so minutes leading some riveting chat about emerging digital. That's right, this week we'll be talking all things new and exciting in our industry. We'll chat with Becky Waring from Unruly, Ed Couchman from Snap, get a handy explainer of bid hashing from Charlie Glynn at Havas, and in a season finale shake-up, fire our 10 notorious quickfire questions in the direction of IAB UK Chief Executive John Mew. Plus, of course, we'll be sitting down with an IA beer to bring you this season's final slice of gossip from within the IAB office. So, whether you're listening to this while you scroll through your social media feeds, or while you take that perfect selfie for your army of followers, we hope that before too long, you'll feel ahead of the curve when it comes to the big innovations in emerging digital trends. Now, our amazing industry moves fast, which is definitely a good thing, although sometimes it can feel a bit of a challenge to keep up. Never fear, though. That's exactly what we at the IAB are here for. So we've gathered two venerable guests to discuss a couple of the new and emerging trends in digital advertising, which we can look forward to working with in the future. So here to look into the future with me is Becky Waring, VP of Insider Unruly, to tell us about emotional targeting, and IAB podcast alumnus Ed Couchman, UK General Manager of Snap to share some wisdom on camera marketing. A big welcome to you, Becky and Ed. Thank you. Hi, Tom. So we're going to talk about two areas which we've sort of started to hear a little bit about. Um, As I said, camera marketing and emotional targeting. Before we start going into the detail uh, and talking about the opportunities for advertisers, could you give us a 30-second lowdown uh, on what each of those mean? Becky, first. Well, emotional targeting for us at Unruly would be... First of all, it's about understanding the intrinsic emotional um, power of the ad itself. Um, But then it's about understanding which audience is most ads most likely to resonate with. So that's that's how our emotional approach has always worked. It's about targeting the ads to the audience who are most likely to be receptive. But I can I can talk about it in more detail methodology later. Sounds good. What about camera marketing? Uh, So camera marketing is possibly the most exciting new creative canvas we've seen in a very long time. Um, Gen Z and millennials are living their life through the camera. So obviously everyone carries a smartphone. On Snap, um, the app opens to the camera. And we think that is a new creative canvas. It's how millennials navigate and explore the world. And we think it's a great place for brands and advertisers to be present in. And what does mainstream look like for camera marketing? So in all honesty, Tom, uh, so I've been at at Snap for just over a year. So it's my Snapversary. And I remember when I first arrived, and I look back and I I was astounded around how little um, marketeers and brands and advertisers really understood camera marketing. Because actually what I saw was that actually... Uh, Snap is a, a platform of choice for that generation, the kind of leaders of the future, but also uh, they're kind of very active and present on the platform. And what I've seen over the last year is a real embracement of the technology, essentially. So if I looked on the platform across this week, we have lots of activity of camera marketing from uh, brands around the World Cup. So um, that could be Mars or Visa. And even uh, Tesco's are using some camera marketing this week to promote their new uh, fruit juices. Awesome. And what about for Unruly? What's the pace of uh, adoption been like? 
Well, most most campaigns of a kind of decent size that run with us, uh, we apply emotional targeting to as standard. And I think what when it comes to maturity, I, I imagine it would be people thinking about the emotional aspects of the campaign from a really early stage. So it would be talking about, okay, what emotions are we trying to evoke? Um, what emotional context is this really going to stand out in? And what emotional context do we actually want to avoid? And what are the types of personalities or types of cultural leanings of the people that we're trying to reach? So if all of those were factored in from the start, I think that would be amazing. And we've got a lot of interesting case studies of cases where using this emotional approach has worked really well to deliver campaign results but what we're trying to do now is bring all of that insight into a dashboard so that advertisers can see I guess they they can get more of an overarching view of how it's working for them and I hope that will encourage people to take more of a long-term consistent approach to it. And when you think about how brands are using it how does the emotional testing part of fit with them fit with emotional targeting because obviously it's a two-phase approach yeah exactly they're interconnected they work together um, very harmoniously so how our emotional targeting works is all actually it's based on testing originally so every video that we're running goes through a testing process it's seen by 500 people we're asking them about their emotional responses um, we also capturing it um, their expressions via webcam so that's another more kind of passive read on their emotional response. Um, and we are looking at things like those people's demographics, their personality, like I mentioned before, their interests um, and their cultural leaning. And then from the results from that test, that's how we come up with the emotional bullseye audience who are most likely to respond well to the ad. So it's about using those insights to inform the distribution strategy. And then the emotional segments themselves come from looking at what type of person is completing those campaigns in the wild. So looking at dwell times on those campaigns, say we know this is a nostalgic video. When it goes live, we're dropping cookies on people who are kind of get to a certain way through the video because we take that as a signal that they are enjoying the ad mm. and then we use that to model our audiences of people that we know are more likely to engage with nostalgic ads that's super interesting and it feels oh, like there's, there's <laughs> such ripe ripe ground there um i guess what strikes me about both of these areas is that um data feels kind of intrinsically unemotional but both of them are, are thinking about big data in a slightly different way and bringing the emotion in um what uh, do you feel that there's a sort of cross-germination synergy possibility here with what camera marketing can do in terms of using emotion? Um, do you know what? It's interesting, actually, because I think we hear a lot in the advertising industry around how there's an attention deficit, essentially, uh, how people have lead such frantic lives and it's really hard then for advertisers to kind of get their attention. And I do think there's an interesting play where... What we find with AR, essentially, is actually it's really playful. It's really exciting. I think using some data to understand that and kind of think about, okay, what's the idea behind the campaign? And that's where I think an idea and creativity comes hand in hand with the data and then think about how we then target that campaign afterwards. Mm. And uh, for a brand thinking, oh, a camera isn't for me, I don't really understand it, or their, their thought about AR is simply that it's just Pokemon, for example, <laughs> what, what is the sort of need to know for an entry-level advertiser if they're considering camera marketing? You know, that's a really good question. I think the first thing that I try and get across is actually camera marketing is now, today. 
Actually, it's a mainstream thing that we have around 70% of all our uh, users use AR every day. So it's here and now. Wow. Um, and I think that's really important. And then I think I'd really encourage um, brands and advertisers to think, okay, what, as I mentioned, what is the idea essentially? Don't start with the technology, start with the idea and then think how um, a creative canvas can kind of build on that essentially. What's the experience? And start from there and then build out. I like it. What about emotional targeting? Like what if, if I'm feeling a bit daunted, what's, what, how do I get into it? What do I need to know? Well, I think some things that we've been advising our clients on recently that become really important to take into account are context is becoming really important now in emotional targeting. So like you were saying about thinking about the end user's experience, the context is a huge part of that. So it's like really having empathy with what that ad is going to look and feel like when someone finally sees it. So that's that's another angle that we're looking at and we combine it with the targeting is also targeting by emotional context. So we work with Grapeshot to analyze the tone of the page so we can save that nostalgic ad I mentioned earlier. You can deliver it into a page which is kind of a nostalgic in feel and we find that that delivers much better um, completion rates and click-through rates. And so that's that's something that's really exciting to think about, I think. And there's another, and also it can be complementary as well. So sometimes you might find that it's not about matching the emotions, but about emotions that complement each other. So, for example, we found that informative ads stand out more in an inspiring page. And so I think that just gives you a really kind of interesting idea into the experience of people when they're watching the ad. The context is really, really important and it's important to be creative with it. Yeah, and I guess that is not to downplay these technologies, but actually, is this just classic marketing with some new technology overlaid on it? Or do you think there is some new theory coming in here? Well, I think that the power of emotion is is like absolutely classic marketing theory. And I've definitely noticed there's been a lot more interest in it recently over the past couple of years, in particular in conferences, talking to clients, people are mentioning emotion more and more, becoming really prevalent. Um, but I think... It's the, it's the question of it's like the right message, right person, right time. But with the right message, it's it's less about telling people a message and more about evoking an emotion, I think. And that, that is something that's slightly different. So we've always been really good at telling people our message. But are we so good at kind of listening to the signals we're getting back from people in the data? And that's something that we can really play with and take advantage of now. And then in terms of the right time, it's not just the right time, but the right context and the right format as well. Yeah, and it feels like people are talking about context a lot more. And I guess when you've got as many users as Snap have, then you can tell a lot more about people's environment and the mood they're in. Do you know what? Snap is fundamentally a fun place. It's a place where you kind of hang out and chat to your best friends and creating fun filters and lenses. And we think, you know, it's a fun place at its heart. And Tom, to go back to your question, though, so I do think it is classical marketing, essentially. Uh, or modern classics. So if I took Byron Sharp, who we're obviously all fans of how brands grow, one and two, if I digest, uh, distilled all those pages down into a kind of, uh, my takeout essentially was that kind of brands, advertisers need to build um, mental availability or, or physical availability. And advertising essentially is that mental availability. And I think AR, you know, as I said, it is playful, it is fun. It does serve utility as well, but it really helps. It grabs people's attention. And, you know, if you're having a brand logo on your face or sharing that with your friends, that kind of word of mouth thing as well, it really helps with that um, mental availability. 
And with Snap, it feels like there's probably a unique audience there which people can reach that are increasingly harder to reach elsewhere. Um, what's that kind of killer insight for the group that makes what you're doing so attractive to brands? So I, th- I think you're right. We do reach Gen Z and millennials or Gen Z, depending on which country we obviously work in. I think it's Z. Gen Z, absolutely. <laughs> um, and we reach about 75% of all uh, 16 to uh, 34-year-olds in the UK. So that's kind of unique. But I said at the heart of Snap, though, is is both um, chat, but also is creating. That, and the killer scat is that 70% of all Snap users play with AR every single day and I think that's the thing that stands out and then I think brands can then talk in their language essentially and think about this as a whole new exciting canvas it's the way that millennials are communicating with each other how do we embrace that and talk in that language sounds so interesting and such an opportunity for for the future um Becky are you seeing huge differences in terms of the audience when as an insight person yourself mm. do you find that different ads com- resonate completely differently with Gen Z as they do with baby boomers or Gen Y um, in certain cases, it's, it's, there's always some ads which are really niche to a youth audience um, and then others which have like a really universal response and you can, some ads you can break it down by any audience and you see the same emotion coming through at its core. Um, but we, we've seen a big kind of increase in short form ads and silent ads and that's something that I think is a big opportunity and we found that they tend to resonate more with younger audiences than they do with older audiences but I, I don't know if that will change over time as they become more common but I think that that's a big opportunity is playing with um, those silent videos because I think the fact is the majority of ads are watched without sound and that's something we kind of have to accept and embrace and it can lead to amazing creativity as well like the um, example I always like to use is the the New York Times um, the truth is worth it campaign that has fantastic use of text and photography it really it doesn't need sound to get its message across but it's incredibly like special and moving but it it just it mirrors the online environment really really well it's so clever and I think that is absolutely key for um, gaining attention Mm. and in terms of brands doing it very well is there anyone we could shout out to that you see using snap in an exceptional way do you know what? As I mentioned earlier, we've got loads of great work live right now because of uh, the Women's World Cup from uh, Mars and Visa and Nike spring out. Uh, some work around Love Island with Voxy. Um, and I said Tesco's are promoting their new juice range this week. So, um, you know what? We're seeing a, a wide range of brands from different sectors all really embracing it, actually. Awesome. So uh, where where do we go from here then? Like we, It feels like both of these areas are actually beyond just emerging they are being used by brands Mm. and being used really effectively Uh, what the next two to three years hold for emotional targeting I think what's going to have an emotional targeting I'm hoping that there'll be a lot more automation in the analysis of the ads and also not just the analysis of the ads but the um, analysis of the pages as well that I mentioned for context so I think that contextual and ad data is becoming a lot more sophisticated because obviously it is quite a time-consuming, costly process to analyse every ad in such detail. Um, but on the other hand, I hope that we, everyone still continues to kind of inject that human insight into the process because I think there's a danger that if you're always rigidly following best practices and trends and specific patterns that the advertising becomes very samey and then obviously that's going to be a huge issue for brand differentiation and when you talk about automation is there an opportunity there for 
kind of auto-optimization as well. So kind of advanced A-B testing based on which ads are performing better. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, so kind of optimizing campaigns in real time. That's super exciting. And we all, we already have... Um, you know, kind of, I guess, modular videos where different parts of the ads are served to different types of people. And you can switch that up throughout the campaign as as you see how they're, they're performing against different audiences. Cool. And what about camera marketing, AR? Where does where does the next two to three years take us? Tom, predicting the future is always a risky business, isn't it? Um, <laughs> we'll get you on next season. Too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I do think, though, there's this classic uh, c- kind of technology thing that we do is where we... Um, overestimate in the short term and then underestimate the impact in the long term and I think that's exactly where we are with AR and I do generally think we're at an inflection point you mentioned Pokemon earlier I'm sure um, we're going to see lots of uh, people playing uh, Harry Potter Wizarding World which uh, is when is that coming out today or yesterday so stay tuned for that is it yeah Yeah. (laughs) so I expect the streets of London to be packed with people holding their phone discovering gems and and, falling into uh, ditches yeah (laughs) hopefully not yeah one of my friends was late to a barbecue yesterday because they were playing it so I think that's Brilliant. going to be, a, this is a big moment. And uh, what I do think is this merging of the digital world and real world to just make one world is going to, is actually a thing. And, you know, Harry Potter is probably going to help create that. Something that we're really excited about in the near term is what we call um, uh, landmark tech. So this is kind of physical buildings. And uh, you're about to see Spider-Man for the launch of uh, Far Away, which is the next Spider-Man uh, installment from the franchise, swinging through uh, the windows and doors of Buckingham Palace. So anyone visiting Buckingham Palace will hold out their phone and then be able to see Spider-Man kind of swinging through. Or if you're in Paris, that could be at the Eiffel Tower as well. And we're really excited, essentially, by this merging of the real world, digital world to make one world, and then how brands can get involved in that. Awesome. Well, it sounds like we have a lot to look forward to and probably a lot to learn for many of us as well. But thank you so much, Becky and Ed, for coming on, chatting to us. Uh, Of course, here at the IAB, we've gathered plenty of resources to help keep uh, you up to date. If you check out our website at iabuk.com and go to the Explore section, you'll find all our latest research and details of all our members there. So, Ed, Becky, thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. Welcome to Two Minutes On. This is the part of the podcast where we take a tricky or complex concept and invite an expert in the field to explain it in just two minutes. This week, we're taking on bid shading. I'm very pleased to welcome Charlie Glynn, Head of Programmatic at Havas, to do some demystifying for us. Hello, Charlie. Hi, Tom. So shading makes me think of either RuPaul's Drag Race or something I should have done more of at Cannes last week. Uh, So please enlighten us. When it comes to programmatic, what exactly is bid shading? So bid shading is um, a programmatic term that's been used quite a lot recently, um, not to be confused with bid caching, but bid shading is essentially to address the change in the industry that's happening from us moving from a second price auction to a first price auction. Now, what does that mean? That means when an ad becomes available, um, buyer one might bid $10, buyer two bids 20 under a second price auction buyer two wins but pays one cent over the previous price so ten dollars and one cent um, and in the first price auction buy two wins but pays twenty dollars now that's amazing for publishers because they're getting um, more money for their inventory but from a buyer perspective you may easily be overpaying for that ad impression so that's where bid shading comes in and bid shading um, is a technique that can be done both by supply side platforms and demand side platforms. And it essentially uses um, bidding history to work out what is the lowest cost that you should be bidding while still being able to win that impre- that ad 
um, and make sure that you spend your your budget in the most efficient way possible without overpaying. Gotcha. So it sounds like it's important from the buy side to know whether you're bidding on first price or second price. Yes, definitely. Yes. And how would you find that out? So uh, a lot of reporting has changed a lot um, in kind of recent years, but then also I think a lot of the relationships that we have from a Havas perspective um, are much, much better with all of our supply partners. So it's part of our ongoing conversations whenever we're talking about setting up deals or or buying inventory from, from any any publisher is what type of auction do they typically use and then we can make sure that we adjust our bidding um, as a result. And uh, this feels like it's part of this shift towards transparency in the industry throughout the entire supply chain which obviously we've been doing a lot on with our own transparency FAQs, shameless plug there, check them out on our website. (laughs) Um, But this is going to help make it clearer for both buy side and supply side uh, in terms of what is actually happening in the supply chain. Definitely. And that's a big thing um, from a Havas perspective. Like We have supply side um, frameworks in place with a lot of partners that really um, declares that you know this is the kind of information that we want to be sharing and know about um, with any of our trusted partners. That's brilliant. Charlie, thank you so much for shining a light uh, on that for us. I think that this will prove to be one of the more useful lessons that we've learned on this podcast. Uh, So thank you very much for joining us on the IAB podcast. No problem. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the final instalment of Overheard at the IAB for this series. If you haven't listened before, where have you been? And if you have, you'll know that this is the point in the podcast where we have a lovely chat with some esteemed IAB colleagues and glean as much industry gossip as we possibly can. This week, I'm joined once again by our Director of Campaigns, Sophia Haynes. Welcome back, Sophia. Hello again. Now, Sophia, before we get into the main thing you're here to talk about, first things first, uh, what have been your highlights of the season of the podcast? And you can't say James is hosting. No, of course not. Um, It's wonderful to have you on board, Tom. Um, I'd say... There was a mental health episode, episode six, back in the spring, which for me was really um, amazing and a great conversation to be had in our industry. Um, It featured Eva Grimmett and um, George Bethany of Sanctus. Mm. And certainly Eva talked very honestly about her own mental health. And we're all becoming far more aware of our mental health in the same way as our physical health. Ten years ago, it was really not a discussion, uh, certainly within my remit, within the industry. So I think that was pretty um, significant and important. Um, I also loved um, the last episode, uh, the Engage special, because I think whether you attended the event or you didn't get chance to, it's just great to hear a bit more from the speakers and a bit more... um, uh, of their their mindset and and what they found about the day, so that's definitely worth a listen. Yes, absolutely. And all of the engaged speaker sessions are now on our website at iobuk.com. And if you missed that episode of the podcast, uh, episode six, it was a really heart hitting um, and interesting discussion about mental health. Uh, all past episodes available as well. Um, so you are leading on one of the more interesting projects that we're working on at the moment uh, on direct-to-consumer brands. What are these infamous D2C brands and what can we expect from the project? Um, well, yes, thank you for having me here to talk about uh, my passion project at the moment. So D2C brands um, are the ones, the direct-to-consumer brands, the ones that we're identifying as being born online, 
that disrupt or innovate in some way the business model in which they operate. So we're looking at retail brands. So it might be the way that they sell them or the actual product itself, the way it's curated or, or built. Um, they also, very importantly, hold the data and direct relationship with their consumer. So they are very good at uh, iterating and improving their product. And they're also very good at sort of promoting and marketing it because they know their audience and they can understand what they love and what they don't and help to sort of spread it further. We find these brands interesting because digital, as I said, they're born online typically with small sort of budgets and they use digital advertising as a, a key pathway to sort of get their presence known and their brand awareness. And what about the, their relationship with consumers? Are we expecting to see different behaviour in the way people interact with these brands? I think so. I think people are generally very impressed by these sorts of brands because more often than not, they answer better needs um, of consumers. So whether it's a sort of toothbrush brand that's environmentally friendly and um, decomposable or whether it's a subscription service that genuinely helps you not just try, you know and you can switch it off uh, for a month without having to pay for it um, or otherwise use it and get sort of tailored clothes that really are suited and send anything back you don't like they're less about pushing um, sales and more about making the consumer happy which in turn leads to probably the consumer you know investing in them more so there's some really fascinating brands that we've shortlisted we've looked at 50 across different retail categories um, everything from food and drink to health and fitness um, and we're really looking forward to sort of releasing that big sort of 50 uh, and we're sort of now looking at the consumers who buy those brands and how they uh, are different or, or how they stand out compared to the national population of consumers. It sounds super interesting. Um, and as this section is all about gossip, is there anything you can reveal about the findings so far? Well, uh, there is a, there is a, a few things. I want to keep um, everything intact for the big reveal in, in the autumn. But um, we've seen so far that quite a few of these brands are led by uh, women or founded by women, more so than the number of FTSE 100 brands um, with female CEOs. So for us, that's a really interesting diversity angle, inclusion angle or equality angle, um, because it shows that, you know, there's there's less I guess prejudice or or history perhaps in this this area, um, so women are able to to sort of kick them off just as easily, um, and I think other things we've seen we've seen we've seen a large amount we've done, with the consumer research we've seen a large number of people have actually bought from these brands so they're not just kind of pie in the sky brands that no one's really ever heard of mm. they're brands that many of us will know but we might not know them all um, and it's really interesting to look at all their stories and when we do reveal it we'll talk to the founders themselves and see what their passion point was why they started the brand what motivated them to do something different and disrupt um, one of the examples is LV which I'm just a big fan of which um, has developed a breast pump that's much more discreet silent um, and effective than anything on the market and isn't full of wires and all the hideous things that anyone who has used a breast pump uh, will probably recollect so it's really sort of pioneered the way and, and in the sense of that I think there's this a bit referring back to Engage and Caroline Criado Perez's angle on data and the invisible woman, some of these products have been developed much more closely by the person who might be using them in the end. And therefore, um, they are better because they have sort of true spirit of, of need embedded in them. Yeah, it feels like it's taking it back to the sort of founding of many companies in the traditional way we think about them. Um, 
it's a hot topic in the industry at the moment, direct to consumer. So I think there's going to be a huge amount of interest in this when it comes out in the autumn. Um, thank you very much for joining us, Sophia. Thank you, Tom. In 2016 in Chile, astronomers looked at their imaging results and observed a little brown dot, not that far from a bluish-white dot they knew to be the star CVSO30. This little dot got the scientists very excited, because it turned out to be a planet, the first direct image of a planet to be captured outside our solar system, and a possible contender as a habitable planet for life. This little planet, called CVSO30c, is 280 times further away from Earth than Alpha Centauri, the star system nearest to our own or, to use another measurement, 1,200 light-years. What we're trying to say is, 1,200 is a pretty big number. Here at the IAB, we're delighted to have over 1,200 member organisations, and most weeks, we pay one a visit to answer our 10 absolutely infamous quickfire questions. However, to finish Season 2 a little differently, I wanted to put one of the IAB's own into the hot seat. And who better than John Mew? the IAB's CEO, who I caught up with this week to see if he could hold out under the pressure. Final member of the uh, season, and here we are. We haven't come far, and we're not with a member. Uh, we're here with John Mew in the IAB UK Longacre office. How are you, John? I'm very well, Tom. Thank you. Are you disappointed that this is pretty much your first appearance on this season of the podcast? I am. I am more disappointed you're not counting my, my last appearance on the, the last uh, podcast, but uh, yes, I am excited. In which you were superb. Um, you know how this works, so I don't need to go over it in too much detail. 10 questions, 60 seconds. Are you ready? I am. Let's go. Uh, what is your all time favourite ad? It is the first orange TV ad, uh, The Future's Bright, The Future's Orange, which inspired me to get into the industry. Cracking ad. They don't make like that anymore. Uh, what is your secret superpower? I can wiggle my ears independently of each other. Quite a talent. There will be a video on Twitter by the end of the day. Uh, what is the most rock and roll thing you've ever done? It wasn't very roll, but it was in a rock and well, a rock band, but not a rock and roll band. Cool. Uh, flossing or vossy bop? I can floss like a boss, but I vossy bop like a flop. Amazing. Macklin Street or Longacre? It has to be Longacre because uh, the team are here, so it's more fun. Nice. Who is your favourite member? Um, it's uh, whoever's membership is up for renewal or more seriously uh, I think Mind who are an advertiser member uh, who are a charity partner of ours uh, and uh, we think it's really important to raise awareness of mental health in the industry Very, very good choice Uh, What is your top podcast tip? Uh, It is, at the moment, it's Case File Uh, I'm a big fan of true crime podcasts and they have about 120 odd episodes uh, of different true crime cases that are well worth a listen We'll tune in uh, what is your favourite session from the last 15 years of Engage? Uh, I would probably choose the fake news session we did with Ken Fors two years ago, uh, which still makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck now. Phenomenal session. Um, a pronunciation dividing the nation, is it turmeric or is it turmeric? Uh, after some reflection, I've realised it's turmeric. T-U-R as in F-U-R, fur, tur, turmeric. It must be turmeric, right? Or maybe turmeric. It could be, I don't know. Uh, And finally, a five-word reason why someone should join the IAB. Help build a sustainable future. Bang on message. Thank you very much, John. Thank you. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 10 and the end of the series. A big thank you once again to our sponsor for this series, Verizon Media. 
and a big thanks to everyone who's listened. We've loved making this series and we hope it's helped keep you informed and up to date. You can, of course, still listen back to previous episodes if you missed any. And whether you're a super fan or you've got some constructive feedback, we'd love to hear it. Just drop us an email at podcast at iabuk.com. And if you want more information on what the IAB does and how you can get in touch with us, find us online at iabuk.com or at iabuk on Twitter and Instagram. All that remains to be said then is once again, thank you for listening and we'll catch you for season three. The IAB Podcast, sponsored by Verizon Media.